Hello there, Living Water. Um, sometimes things don't go as we planned, and this morning was one of those times. I'm actually recording this on Sunday evening because our tech crew, who's getting used to something very new and very complex in the way of our streaming system, had some technical difficulties this morning. One of the guys who was really struggling with it and did a great job with what he had to work with said that it was a, quote, train wreck. I corrected him and I said, no, it's not a train wreck. It's a training wreck because we're all training. We're all learning new stuff. I'm grateful for our tech crew and I'm grateful for the things they're learning. They're getting better and better. And before long, we're going to be great at this streaming stuff. Now we're going to dive into today's message, which is one that I've preached before, but we're coming at it from a completely different angle this time. This is called, Why Does God Allow Suffering? And I'm borrowing a lot of material from a pastor that I've appreciated reading and listening to some of his messages, Timothy Keller in New York City. And he preached a message on this passage uh, several years ago, about seven years ago, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. So I'm lifting some good material from Tim Keller's sermon on this subject, including a few thoughts of my own and a few illustrations of my own. But I want to give Tim the credit for some really good thinking on this topic. If you'd like to look at a podcast on this subject, Monday Afternoon Theologians has a podcast looking at why does God allow suffering. And to be able to find that, you can just type into your search field on YouTube, Monday Afternoon Theologians Suffering. That's enough to get you there. You'll find it. And Rick Artis and I talk about this for almost an hour, and we go into a little more detail than I have time to go into in today's message. Let me begin by talking about a family friend. This person I met when I was a little boy in Phoenix where I was growing up, and this lady's name is Florence Pollock. Florence was a sweet lady. You just knew that she exuded love for people and for the Lord, for, the, for Jesus. When Florence was a young adult, it was way back in, I'm pretty sure it was the 1930s, she suffered from a problem with her lungs. And back then, the only way the doctors knew how to get to the problem to fix it was to remove one of Florence's ribs. They would be much less invasive today, but that was medicine back then. And from that day forward, Florence walked crooked because she just wasn't lined up on one side as she was on the other. And she suffered from chronic pain because her spine wasn't lined up the way it should be either. So Florence knew what suffering felt like. And she knew that for decades, for the rest of her life. But Florence also knew that her suffering was temporary. And so she talked often about this light and momentary or temporary trial and some of the other trials that she suffered on earth. She had uh, really bad allergies. And even though her family had moved to Arizona, hoping the air would be better for her, she still suffered an awful lot because of her allergies. And yet she was so positive in her outlook. And she constantly pointed to Jesus as her source of eternal hope. And because she had Jesus in her life, she knew that one day all of her temporary afflictions would be gone. And not only would she be pain-free, but she knew that she would be in the presence of Jesus, which means that everything would be abundantly restored to beyond what she knew on earth. It would be the best life ever, but for eternity. And so she knew that because of Christ in her life, life was about to get infinitely better when she graduated from this earth and left her perishable body and had it replaced with an imperishable body. 
Suffering in any form, including the kind of suffering that Florence went through, causes us to ask really big questions about God, and rightly so. They're valid questions. So today we're going to look at something one of the apostles said that helps us tackle some of these questions. Here's one difficult question, and this is the one that arises most often. How can God be both good and powerful and allow suffering? Hmm. I'd like to focus now on Simon Peter's words, and this is a different approach than when I preached on this same topic about a year and a half ago. Let me read this passage, and then I'll present a response to the question, how could a loving God allow evil and suffering? Here's some context. This is good for us to know just before I start this uh, passage. Peter was writing to a group of people who had been suffering, and pretty seriously, and he knew that they would continue to suffer. So that helps us. Let me start reading verse 3 of chapter 1 in 1 Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth or value than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let's look into this argument now. One argument against Christianity. Let me map out what this argument is, which is against Christianity, against God, and then I'll answer that with one negative and three positives in terms of what we're going to be looking at from the passage that we just read. Here's one way that the argument against Christianity, based on the existence of evil and suffering, could be expressed. If God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop them, then he might be good, but he's not all-powerful. If God allows evil and suffering in the world because he could stop it but chooses not to, then he might be all-powerful, but he's not good. Either way, the God who is all-good and all-powerful could not exist, according to this argument. So how do we address this difficult question? Well, we're going to look at one thing we shouldn't do in the face of evil and suffering, and then we're going to look at three things we should do to face evil and suffering. Here's a wrong response to evil and suffering. What we should not do is back away from or abandon our faith. Peter says to us 
through this passage that rather than destroying our faith, suffering strengthens and proves our faith. It will validate for us that our faith is real and it will result in praise, glory, and honor. That was what we see in verses six and seven of that passage. So practically speaking, to back away from or to abandon faith in the face of suffering really doesn't help anything. Abandoning faith doesn't help us cope, doesn't give us a bigger picture or an understanding. It doesn't help us grow in maturity. It just doesn't help. Consider this philosophical argument. If there is no divine law, we can't know if a human law is unjust or not. If we had no divine law as a guide, then all human laws would be completely relative. Human standards can be compared to other human standards, and they're all shifting. For example, we might say, well, I'm not like that guy because he's really, really bad. So my itty-bitty badness by comparison is not that big a deal. <laughs> For example, if one kid steals a slingshot out of a friend's room and another steals a hundred bucks from his friend's wallet in his room, the kid who took the slingshot might be able to say, yeah, that kid stole a hundred bucks. So he's really bad. I only took a slingshot. So it's not that big a deal. That's relative. It's relativity in action. They both did something wrong. They both broke the divine law because we're not supposed to take something that doesn't belong to us. We call that stealing. And the divine law says, thou shalt not steal. So we need a fixed or unchanging standard of right and wrong. We need something that's unshifting, a solid standard by which all other laws are measured. This morning, as I was preaching uh, to the live audience that we enjoyed at the Performing Arts Center at the Lincoln High School, I brought up a child. In fact, I think I still have the video because the sound wasn't working then, so I'm gonna roll this video as I'm talking about it. I used this measuring tape and I said, I'm gonna measure this guy here, it was Alex. And I measured him and it turned out that he was four feet, four inches tall. Then I had Josh Pipe, our drummer, step forward. Now, Josh is much taller, as you can tell from this video, much taller than Alex stretched that tape all the way up to his head, and lo and behold, he was four feet, four inches tall as well. <laughs> and I asked, um, can we say that the measurements were accurate? And people were shaking their heads and saying, no. And I said, well, why not? Because the standard isn't the same with each measurement. It was movable. It was shifting. It was elastic. It wasn't consistent. So we need to have a consistent standard by which we measure whether something is good or bad. And so that's why we need this divine law. This is all pouring into what we're getting at in terms of this logical argument. Now consider this, if there is no creator God, if we're just the result of natural selection, then what's wrong with violence? That's how we got here. If we're here through natural selection, then violence and by necessity, the resulting suffering is by definition natural. I love this quote from Tim Keller. If there is no God, then on what possible basis could you object that the natural order of violence is unnatural? Mm -hmm. He goes on to say, that means that if you don't believe there is a God, then the existence of evil and suffering is actually an even bigger problem than if you do. That's what I mean when I say that when you abandon faith in God, in the face of evil and suffering, it just doesn't help. It won't help you understand a reason for suffering. It won't help find purpose in the suffering. And it won't help you cope as you suffer. So the big question is, well, what will help? 
Here are three ways we can face evil and suffering in our lives as found in the passage written by the Apostle Peter. We're going to look back at something. We're going to look ahead toward something. And we're going to look into something. Back to something, ahead to something, and into something. And here's a little more context. Verse 7. Peter uses fire as an analogy for suffering. Now, when you put metal in a fire, it burns off the slag. Some people call it the dross or the impurities in the metal, things that are easily burned up. What's left behind? The more pure metal. So it becomes not only more pure, but it also becomes more valuable. And believers have been given a promise, and it's found in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 43. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Isn't that a great promise? Now, notice what this promise did not say. It didn't say, I will keep you from passing through the fire. What it did say was, when you pass through the fire. When, not if. So when you walk through the fire, when you're in the midst of your trial, God is so loving that he will be there walking with you in the fire. People like our friend Florence Pollock, she was aware of God's presence with her in her trials. And she was becoming refined in her faith, and her faith became stronger and stronger the older she got. She was like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who walked through that fire in the book of Daniel that we looked at just a few weeks ago. And some people might ask, though, how do you know that this stuff is true? Well, Isaiah's Old Testament promise is actually seen fleshed out, and I mean fleshed out because literally it was fleshed out. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the New Testament. That word is the Logos, Jesus. A lot of things happened in the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament. And it wasn't until we got to Jesus Christ when we finally really, really caught a glimpse so that we could understand just how far God would go to live up to that promise from Isaiah. So we're going to look back at the cross. The cross demonstrates how far God went to be with us in our affliction. That's why we need to look back at it. We've got to look at the cross. When we look back at the cross, we know the links to which God will go to live up to that promise in Isaiah. Then we see in verses 10 and 11, Peter talks about how the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ in advance. They were looking ahead, trying to find out what those circumstances would look like when he came to fulfill everything they were talking about. They also predicted the glory that would be revealed as a result of his suffering on our behalf. If you're heartbroken and angry because of this horrible social injustice we can see all around us, you can look to the cross and see essentially God's own son being unjustly treated. That's how far he was willing to go to be with us in our affliction and in our season of injustice. If you're a parent who has sadly lost a child, we know several families who've been through that pain. You can look to the cross and see a God, God the Father, who's losing his own son. In your most painful sufferings, if you find yourself crying out, why, God, why? You can look to the cross and hear Jesus asking the very same question. Jesus has suffered everything that we have ever suffered. And that's part of the reason we can know that he is with us in our affliction, in our fiery trial, in our suffering. Jesus went into the ultimate furnace for you. It was the only furnace that could consume you. That's how you can know that he's walking into your personal furnaces with you because he went to the ultimate furnace for you. 
you know that Jesus is in the fire with you by looking back to the cross. Well, then we also have to look ahead to something. We're going to look ahead to our inheritance, verses 3 and 4. Look forward to that inheritance that will never spoil or fade, never. This inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. Jesus' resurrection, his physical resurrection from the dead, is the reason we can look forward to this inheritance that's being talked about here in the Bible. The Bible talks about God's final act of restoration. When heaven comes to earth and restores everything, we see that in Revelation 21. Paul also talks about this final chapter of God's plan. He refers to it as the believer's resurrection. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, the body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. And then Paul also talks about the sign that validates that this promised resurrection will happen. That validation is Jesus' own physical resurrection from the dead. The validating sign that gives us certainty that we'll share in the final salvation is Christ's resurrection. This final salvation, verse 9, is the new heaven and the new earth that we've been promised. I love this old quote from an old preacher. It said, if the cross was the payment, then the resurrection was the proof that the check cleared the bank. <laughs> Talk about a validating sign. Just a few weeks ago on July 4th, Joy and Callie and I spent an afternoon with the Salerno family. And John Salerno had a tree growing outside that he had in a big pot on some wheels so he could roll it outside during the daytime. And it was a fig tree. And I was so excited. Why was I excited? Because I have a fig tree. <laughs> My eldest daughter sent me one a year ago for a Father's Day gift. And when it showed up at our house on a doorstep with a special delivery guy, it was just a twig, maybe six, seven inches long with one tiny little sprout in it. <laughs> and Joy named our fig tree Newton. John told me that his fig tree gulps a lot of water. He said, you got to just water the fire out of these things. I went home and I just watered and watered and watered our Newton. And it started to really come alive because it had been looking a little wilty. And it was amazing. I had faith after seeing this validation, this sign that a fig tree actually could make it in Michigan. I saw it with my own eyes. It was demonstrated to me that if I had faith and if I kept watering, my tree would come alive. There were eyewitnesses that saw Jesus Christ after his crucifixion and burial. They realized that he was the first fruits of believers' resurrections. He was the validating sign of the inheritance that we have to look forward to. The term first fruits actually has two meanings too. First, it means that Jesus was the first to be resurrected and that many more will also be resurrected in the future. All those believers, all those who place their faith in him. Secondly, it was a reference to the Old Testament custom of bringing first of their harvested crops as an offering. And Jesus became an offering on our behalf as well. It was his offering that became the payment for sin, the decisive battle against sin and Satan, and the validating sign that believers in Jesus will have a resurrection. He was the down payment. Here's another concept that I think is great for us to see. There's a big difference between compensation and restoration. Resurrection is not just compensation for the life we lost because of sin. Resurrection is the restoration of the life we lost. Let's say, for example, and this really happened to us one time, let's say you get a pizza delivered to your house and you open it up after you have paid the guy and he takes off and you open it up and see that there are a whole bunch of little bitty cracks in between each of the slices in the box. And you start pushing all the pizza slices together and you realize 
he's actually missing one complete slice from that pizza. <laughs> it looks like maybe the pizza delivery guy had a, a snack on the way to your house. <laughs> well, if you were to call the pizza place and say, uh, this pizza that we just got is missing a piece. And if they said, oh, I'm sorry, we'll email you a $5 coupon as a compensation for what was lost. Well, that might be fair because you paid maybe, I don't know, eight bucks for the whole pizza and they're giving you five back, which is probably worth more than one slice. But you wanted a whole new pizza, didn't you? <laughs> God's promised restoration of the life we lost because of sin gives us back everything, not just compensation. We get back this body, this world, the relationships with loved ones. He's going to restore everything to its perfection for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We get the whole pizza. <laughs> That's the inheritance we can look forward to when we are in our own seasons of suffering. And we can remember that they are temporary, even though they feel like they're lasting forever. They're temporary. When we're tempted to back away from or even to abandon our faith, we can remember that death and suffering aren't just stopped. They are swallowed up in victory, and life will be completely restored. Have you ever had a really bad dream? I uh, heard this from a fellow pastor, a colleague who shared that he had a really terrible dream one time. He dreamed that he had lost his family. They were just gone, and he didn't know where they were. He didn't know if they were okay. He was beside himself. And when he woke up, he realized that it was just a bad dream and that they were all there. But he also said that before the dream, before he went to bed that night, he knew he loved his family. But after that dream, after he had experienced, even though it was only a dream, he had experienced their being gone, he couldn't look at his family without crying. Tears of joy, because he felt like they had been restored to him. There were wonderful feelings of getting them back. And for this pastor, he said this experience of, quote, losing his family made the experience of gaining them back infinitely greater. That's what we have to look forward to in this restored new heaven and new earth. We're going to get all of our life back and more. And so there's going to be infinitely more joy because of the suffering that we have had to experience while on the earth temporarily. As believers, the inheritance we're going to enjoy is going to be infinitely more precious than anything we can imagine now. Everything sad and awful from this life is going to make everything there in the resurrected life with Christ infinitely more precious and joyful and alive and vibrant and perfect and eternal. All of our earthly sufferings are going to be swallowed up into Christ's victory. Not only are we looking back at the cross, and not only are we looking ahead or forward to our inheritance, but we're going to look into the gospel, verse 12. The prophets weren't serving themselves. They were serving us by pointing ahead into the future. They were pointing ahead to something that they didn't even know about fully. They were doing something not in their own lifetime. They wouldn't even know how important their work had been. But now that people have been sharing this gospel with us, the prophet's work is being fulfilled. And check this out. Even angels long to look into these things. They long to investigate them. They obsess over it. <laughs> That's what this word means. This word longing in the way it was used back uh, when this was written means to yearn or to eagerly desire, to obsess over. Even the angels obsessively yearn or long to look into the gospel. They constantly look into it, and they don't tire of it. So somebody might ask, well, isn't the gospel 
just a simple basic requirement for somebody to get into heaven, the basic entrance exam, so that if you know the answer to that, and if you can say, well, yes, it's because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that I'm going to heaven, and that gets my ticket punched, don't tell that to the angels. <laughs> it, it's not that simple, according to the angels, who eagerly desire to continually investigate and ponder the gospel. Well, why would the angels want to look into it, this gospel? Because there's such depth that they can never get to the bottom of it. They can never fully grasp it. And we can't fully grasp it either because it's too wonderful for us, but we can accept it by faith. Let me explain it this way. Why did Jesus endure his own furnace, his fiery trial, the cross? Hebrews 12 gives us the answer. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was it that would give Jesus that kind of joy, enough to endure the cross in order to have it? Well, it was a living hope. And what was that hope? It wasn't just so he could be free from the pain he was experiencing on earth. And oh, I can imagine he would have wanted to be free from that pain. And it wasn't so he could just be in heaven relaxing with his father. There was something else that had motivated him to even give up heaven in the first place and come down to earth, which meant that he would have to suffer. Isaiah 53 shows us. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant, meaning Christ, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Think about that. You know what this is saying? <laughs> you are Christ's living hope. You are. That's the only thing Jesus didn't have in heaven. He wants as many as possible to accept his grace and to be counted righteous. And he wants you to be among them. He wants you to be with him in this new heaven and new earth that he's going to restore to its original grandeur and glory. He wants you. You are his living hope. Have you accepted him yet? Have you placed your faith in him yet? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have looked back at your cross. We've looked forward to the inheritance that you're keeping for us. And we've looked into your gospel, and I'm sure that we can't even come close to plumbing the depths and the breadth of this wonderful gospel. But we're grateful because we can see enough there to let us know how far you would go so that we would know that you're entering our trial, our fiery furnace with us. And I thank you for that. I thank you that we can learn purpose in suffering. We can know that you will always bring good out of every bad thing that happens to your believers. We know that you've felt everything that we feel. We know that you love us enough to go to the cross for us, to pay the penalty of sin that we could never pay for ourselves, and that you deeply desire all people to accept your grace and to place their faith in you. I pray that whoever is listening to this right now will do just that, that they will reach out to you and say, Jesus, I need you. I need a Savior. I need forgiveness for my sin. I need help through my suffering. And now that I know how far you went to show your love for me, I know that you suffered on my behalf. And so you know what I'm feeling and you empathize with me. And I thank you for that. And I pray that you will guide me through this temporary trial that I'm going through and that I'll come out stronger and refined and more pure and more valuable because I'm your child. Thank you for seeing me through this earthly trial. And now I look forward 
with confidence because of what you did for me to that eternal glory that I'll get to share with you in that inheritance that you're keeping for me. Thank you for all that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.